those of you who have heard Chad before or you watched the video, he talked about Aziz. Aziz was his interpreter for eight deployments in Iraq and became his friend and his brother. Um, and we're glad we have him here with us this evening. And Aziz, I would say um, thank you for what you did. Thank you. Uh, we're not just, I'm not saying that. On behalf of myself and my wife, my kids, my grandkids, this folks that are here, thank you for your service. And thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being with us here tonight. We believe the Lord has brought you a long way and on a long journey, and part of that is to be here Amen. with us. Okay. Thanks. Sir. Here, let me get this out of here. Appreciate it. You can do whatever you want. Okay. Hello. Good evening. Hope everyone is doing well. <clears throat> My name is Azizullah. Everyone calls me Aziz from the childhood because it's the short, shorter version of it and it's easy to pronounce. Especially here in America, it's very hard to pronounce the long names when coming from overseas. I was born in Kabul uh, into a Muslim family. The family was farmers. Everybody was dependent on farms, crops, and uh, grapes, peaches. My grandparents, they owned uh, the lots of land north of Kabul. We had uh, two houses, one in the capital, Kabul, another in the way on the countryside in uh, north of Kabul. So in the summertime or springtime, we would all travel, go to the north and uh, do all the farmer job on the farms, and then in the, near the winter or fall time, we would come back with a bunch of grains and dried fruits, and that's all what we ate, and you know, I grew up uh, eating grapes or tea, sugar, and a piece of bread. I see uh, uh, sometimes uh, American children, uh, they're not appreciating what they have. I'm not here to offend you. But this is just uh, my experience when I lived this side, I lived the other side, and now I'm here living this side, I see how much difference uh, there is. Uh, you guys are so blessed. The love, uh, grace, and mercy of God is on you. The leadership, the management, and your parents, your grandparents, they did a great job for y'all. So uh, it is time to uh, take this uh, opportunity and appreciate what you have uh, instead of complaining, especially for the young children, my message. However, uh, I was really bothered with the poor economic situation of my family. Every time I was trying to find a secondary source of income for the family. Although uh, I was uh, very young and uh, the country was full of uh, civil wars, like the Russians uh, already left, but then the Mujahideen groups, different uh, groups of Mujahideen, they were p fighting for power. Uh, there were mortar shells, uh, rocket fires, artillery fires, gunfires, 
landmines, that was like a part of everyday life. So uh, one day uh, when we were in North, I was probably between six or seven years old, uh, that as a child I learned that I do not need to take permission from my grandparents. Now I can do it, I can go outside and make friends and play in the playgrounds, so I saw that the, the elders are not in the house. They are all gone working in the farms. I went outside, and uh, I start making friends. You know, that age, uh, that time of the childish uh, age, and uh, how happy I was, how happy my buddies were. We were running around and making fun of each other. There are uh, leftovers from the rations, from the mujahideens, from all the uh, Russian-Afghan war and the uh, civil wars. There is unexplosive uh, devices everywhere, rounds and ammunitions. So suddenly one of my buddy, uh, little buddy came up with this game, tapping on the shoulder. He said, uh, I touched on your shoulder. Now if you are a man, run and catch me and tap on my shoulder, shoulder take revenge, or else you are not a man. So this became a great game. We are laughing and we are running around and touching each other's shoulders, climbing on the Russian tongues and jeeps. And then suddenly, like six of them, they came and touched my shoulder. And they said, now if you are a man, run, catch us, tap and take your revenge or you are not a man. They are in the front. I'm running behind them and uh, so after a while, I got really exhausted. They were really fast. I was uh, weaker, and something, a force stopped me. My lungs uh, had like a problem of short breathing. I stood a little bit. I was trying to take breath, and they ran into the cemeteries. Next thing I know is I'm all covered with dust. My ears are not working. My eyes are not working. After several minutes... When my eyes started working, I saw there was fragmentations from the rocks and sand and everything on my hand, on my face, and I saw my little buddies. They, they lost, somebody lost a limb, somebody lost a leg, somebody was bleeding, you know. Three of them died that minute, the other three, uh, they survived a few days, but because there was no uh, ambulance, no doctors, no hospitals, the country has been in the war for so long, so they also passed away because of the lack of doctors and medicine. So uh, my grandparents, they punished me for that. Long story short, we came to Kabul. I was really disappointed. And this question came to my mind to find my identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? So different kinds of questions are circling in my mind, and I'm trying to find an answer. One day, I went to the mountain, on top of the mountain, just by myself, very hungry, very disappointed, helpless. I don't see a very bright future for the country. I see lots of killing, torturing, crimes, and everything. So I sat down over there, and I looked to the sky. And I cried, I cried, I cried, and I started praying. I said, God, you are a living God. You are over there. 
every nation has a different name for you based on their own understanding, based on their own language. In different languages, your name is different. But I have this feeling in my heart that you are one and you are a living God. Please help me. Please let me understand the meaning of life. And please lead me to become a very strong and famous person in my life and successful man, a businessman. And I do good things for my country, for my family, for my brothers and sisters and if you see that during that time of my life, if I am going to do bad things and sliding to the side of evil, please stop me and bring me back to yourself. Because I want to be your friend forever and ever. So this is the time, actually, uh, after doing a little bit of research, uh, being in a Muslim family, for those of you who don't uh, know, uh, Quran, Quran is uh, 70 to 75 percent. It's it's the Old Testament. It's everything exactly the same thing. The other 25 percent is based on the Arabic culture. I did my homework. I understood that. So, uh, and then one day uh, I heard the news on the BBC radio because now I'm looking for a purpose, for a goal, to do good things. There is a natural gas pipeline coming from Turkmenistan to Afghanistan. And then from Afghanistan, it's going to Pakistan, and then Iran, India, and finally it's connecting the region. And this uh, reporter on the BBC radio said that if anyone is capable of speaking English, they will have a very good job in the future, significant amount of salary, and there will be a big requirement for interpreters and you know, people with the knowledge of English language. So this was actually the igniting point for me, and I'm like, thank you, God. This is coming from God, and I took it as a God gift, and I started doing my research. Now I need money. I used a wheelbarrow going to the vegetable market, uh, asking this uncle or that auntie, hey, please put your load of vegetable on my wheelbarrow. I will take it to your home, and whatever you want to pay me, you can pay me. But then they made fun of me. They're like, you're a very young child. You cannot take care of yourself. You cannot carry yourself. How can you carry this big load of vegetables? So lots of humiliations and difficulties, but I made a little money. I used that money. I bought me notebooks, pencils, you know, all kinds of stuff, and went to these bookstores and found these self-learning English books, which has the English sentence, and then it has the pronunciation by my native language, and then it has the meaning and uh, all the descriptions, like how I can use it. As I'm practicing and teaching myself, and memorizing sentences, words, and changing them to different tenses. Now all these kids, my little buddies in Kabul, because there is no school, because there is war everywhere, civil wars are going, and these kids are just, you know, playing, they are dirty, they are, you know, dustful, and they, uh, as soon as they hurt me, they made fun of me. They're like, oh, he's gone insane, he's mad, what is he talking about, he's taking that paper, and they, they, they said lots of bad things. After a while, they stopped me, and they asked me, what are you doing? What is this? I explained to them, this is international language, this is English. If you learn it, you can be an engineer, a doctor, this and that, and all the different benefits of it. I explained, now they became interested. They're like, how about if you teach us, even if you know one word, teach us? I'm like, okay. 
we uh, got my wheelbarrow and a couple of buckets. We dig underground, and I got this uh, wooden box that makes bricks. We mashed the mads, and we made bricks. Now, using these bricks, once they were dry, we put a layer of mud and a layer of bricks. We, we made these long chairs in the playground and started my English language institute from over there on the ground under the <laughs> mulberry trees and... Once the elders in the community, they noticed that all these children, they are sitting over there, they are learning, and they are speaking, they did their research, and they found out that I was teaching English. They all came and respected me, and, you know, they really appreciate it, and they encouraged me to continue doing this because there is a need, and uh, now I start charging them money. <laughs> I made, like, millions of Afghanis at that time, like... Eight million Afghani was 100 US dollars at that time. The currency was very bad. So the Mujahideen are gone. The first black era of Taliban has entered into the country. And Taliban put some rules and regulations because it's a Muslim community. They're like every time when there is a prayer time, you have to close your businesses and you need to go to the mosque and do your prayers. One of the evening. We have a conversation class. It's really interesting. And the students ask me that, teacher, please continue with the lecture. Don't worry about the prayer. We will do it some other time. I'm like, okay. I pulled the curtain. We're teaching, but because my voice is loud, and I'm on the second floor, uh, it's like front shops. There is a balcony, and there is like 32 shops. They're all different classes. So we're teaching this Taliban guy group that, that's passing by the street. They heard us. And one of them with a cable climbed onto the balcony and he uh, opened the door very harsh in a very bad manner, in a very bad attitude. He's like, you're teaching an infidel language. Uh, you're not uh, in the mosque. You're not praying. So you committed a big crime. It's a sin. It's a sin against Islam. You're going with me to the jail. I'm very young. I have no beard. And Taliban are really uh, bad guys. They, you know, I'm sorry to say this, needless to say this. They, would, they kidnap the little boys and they have to do bad things with them. So I was afraid if they take me to the jail, I'm done. I have no good face in my community and my future. So I was young. I was a teenager. I was a strong. I was really courage. I was uh, motivated. So I punched this guy on his face. And I jumped from the second floor and ran away to the neighbor's house. This other guy with the AK who was downstairs, he was on the other side of the building. He tried to find me, but he lost me. The house that I entered, there's this lady. Uh, as soon as she saw me, like my leg is uh, bleeding because I had sandals. There was a glass or something that cut my heel and it was bleeding. She saw me. She's like, hey, are you teacher Aziz? What are you doing in my house? I'm like, please. Please give me refuge. The Taliban are behind me. They are taking me to the jail. I have no uh, other place to go. I just uh, uh, out of uh, you know pr the problem. I came to your house. She's like, oh, don't worry about it. My sons are your student. You are the teacher, and my husband is uh, the top leader of Taliban. They were actually new neighbors in the area. Like two, three days they came. I didn't know. She said that this evening when my husband comes, I will tell him and. You know, he will give you a paper or something, and the Taliban will not uh, give you a hard time. 
I'm like, oh my God, I didn't want this to happen. <laughs> I ran away from the Taliban and now I'm stuck in the Taliban's house. She opened the, the, the bathroom. I, I was hiding over there for two hours. After two hours, they were gone, but they told the neighbors that we know his house and we know his uh, course. He cannot run away. We are coming back with a lot more forces uh, to take him and uh, we will punish him very badly. So as soon as uh, my students reported to me that they are gone, I went, told the story to my parents, we cried, we hugged each other, and that night my uh, father, father said that there is this human trafficking guy at the end of the street, he has 39 guys, Afghan guys, he's going to take them to United Arab Emirates, Dubai. So why don't you join them and go with them? I said, okay, because I have no other option. And the country was you know, full of chaos anyways. So I hugged my mom, we cried, I backpack a little money and left the country, long story short, Pakistan, Iran, we got mugged in in Pakistan by Pakistani police, they got all our money because we have no visa, no passport, nothing in Karachi and, you know, then from there to, uh, again, we got mugged in in Iran because the human trafficking guy was able to contact my parents and get more money and give it to us somehow, but then, uh, you know, we got mugged in over there, and then we were lost in the Gulf waters, the ocean waves were trying to swallow us, the first time we are in the ocean, uh, this boatman, he lost the way, his uh, campus was not working, it was one of those old style campuses, you know, we traveled like for 12 hours, it's raining, it is stormy, the Ocean waves are coming high and crazy and filling up our boats and we are crying. We have these little white hats and we are trying to take all the water out of the boats so that we don't get drowned. And finally, the next morning, we're all tired. Our skin is all, you know, sore and lips. There's all kinds of problems in it and we lost our skin. We see that we are back in the same place that we started it in the morning. <laughs> So we never even uh, moved forward like one, one meter or two meter. We went, but the problem was like in the middle of the oceans, they call it the international water, the boats ran out of the fuel. So this wave of wind and, you know, the storm and rain, it pushed us back all the way to where we were. So we had to spend a few more nights, get a little more food, water. They were bringing it on donkeys. And uh, we finally made it to Oman, from Oman to Dubai. Now in Dubai, 40 guys, the only one who can speak the language is me. No one speaks Urdu, no one speaks Arabic. They all know is Pashto or Dari, which is not uh, used over there. Only maybe one or two percent if the Iranian uh, tourists are coming, that's used. Other than that, it's not used. So we are just sleeping in the parking lots, in the public parks, and trying to find money or a job, and now no one is giving us a job. Finally, one day in front of a chicken wrap shop, one of the tourists, he eats a chicken, and then uh, he uh, leaves a little bit of it and he walks away. Because I'm hungry, I run, I take the chicken wrap, I eat it, and then I open the paper, I see it's a Gulf News. And then on the Gulf News, there's a vacancy. Like there's a, a houseboy needed for a Christian family right across the Terminal 2, I called this lady, and uh, she's a very good, pure Christian woman. She comes. First, she doesn't want to hire me because I have no documents. But when I tell the story and all these 39 guys that they are hungry, 
she gives me a part-time job. So the money I make from her, I got my first salary as an advance. I work like half day for her. And then the other half day, I work like as a hand selling man. So I used the, my first salary. I went to the Chinese dragon market. I bought duplicate Rolex watches, binoculars, glasses, you know, all those different kinds of lighters, souvenirs that the tourist would buy and gift to somebody. And I bought a piece of cloth and I put it in front of the one of the famous mosques in Dera, Dubai, and I put all my things on it. So everyone would come, like if I buy one piece of item, for example, for 10 dirhams, I would price it like 150 dirhams. And they would argue with me, argue, but I would still make money. So that money goes all to these, these people, my Afghan buddies, feed them for a few months until they all found jobs. Somebody became a mechanic, somebody became you know, a plumber, somebody one thing, somebody another thing, they all found jobs. During this period of time, like one and a half year over there, uh, I noticed the 9-11 happens. My dad calls me, and he told me, Aziz, this is your time. You have to come back. You cannot spend all your life over there. And because from my childhood, I had this desire, this passion, this love for my country, for my people, that I wanted to see my country grow the same thing like other countries at least to the base of the, the neighbors so that we can compete over there because we were really backwarded because of all the wars over there. So I told the story to the immigration officer and now they want to hire me. He's like, Aziz, we have been spending millions of dirhams to find out how these illegal people are coming to our country. We don't know. Now you give us all the information. You are hired. You are recruited you are working for us. I'm like, no, I'm going to my country. I'm engaged. I need to get married. I will get a passport. And then you send me the visa, then I will come back. Three-star general, very good guy. He said, okay. He made everything for me and put me on the plane. Next day, deported to Afghanistan. I went over there, saw my parents, got married. And then I went to the Kabul military training center where the third special uh, forces group of the United States military is over there, and uh, in Kabul Military Training Center now, uh, they are trying to hire interpreters. There's hundreds of people waiting in the line. So I, one day, another day, another day, until my turn came, I went. And then after a few days, they announced the third guy, my name, like, you're succeeded, okay, come on in. I got my job as a chief interpreter, bilingual Pashto Dari interpreter, they're building the Afghan army, Afghan police, NDS guys. So one year working over there. After that, I got promoted, sent me to U.S. Embassy, another project. The anti-terrorism assistance and cultural advisor. Department 10, presidential palace, you know, very close to the Afghan president, training bodyguards and uh, working and uh, trying to eliminate terrorism and different kinds of projects. So then later on, like in 2000, after 2003, another year, I was promoted and sent to this uh, special uh, project, the JSOC uh, Special Operation Task Force 8, and uh, uh, where I met my brother Chad over there. So this was actually a project that we would go as an undercover to the areas where the bad guys are and build all the different remote support sites and provide everything that's needed for the operation. 
and kind of uh, report it back to our team so they can come, they can have a better operation, and uh, that way there is no civilians or, you know, uh, get hurt or anything like that. So continuously uh, doing this with Chad, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from my brother Chad. I got inspired by, by him. I saw Chad, you know, he's strong, he's full of tattoos, and, you know, he's... Uh, he doesn't drink, and uh, he's always focused on the mission, security, and, you know, uh, swiping the vehicle, looking for fingerprints outside of the vehicle. There's lots of different things that I learned from him. Between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and we, we had uh, very successful missions, over 100 missions together, accepted a lot of risks. Our lives came to the end of uh, being killed by the bad guys. Because uh, in 2000, uh, end of 2006, one of our drivers, he compromised with the Taliban and reported everything to them. And, you know, our house uh, got bombed and uh, a few of our drivers got killed. A few of our uh, colleagues, local colleagues got killed. So long story short, uh, my brother, that I learned from him, that he was always there for, over there for me. He was a true brother and he's taking care of me. He's moved to a different project. And this is the time that my parents, they told me, Aziz, what you are doing is you're not only hurting yourself, but you are hurting your brothers, sisters, and myself. You either choose your job or choose us. What do you want to do? So this is 2007. I chose my job because I love my country, because that war, the work I was doing was more broader. It was for more than 40 million people. Said my family is only a few people, so I couldn't sacrifice my country because of the, my people and my American brothers because they were doing a great job. Schools were built, girls found uh, access to education, government institutions were built, judicial system was put in the process and the system, and over a hundred something TV channels were inaugurated, radio channels were inaugurated. Every day there was. Uh, information, raising awareness, education. So these people, all these people that have been left in isolation and kept uh, away from all the rest of the world, you know, they got connected. Like I remember one time when we, we had to make a phone call, for example, to Germany or America or somewhere, we had to drive to the neighboring countries. We didn't even have the network. So the phone uh, companies opened their businesses, internet, I mean, you name it, a lot of development. I was enjoying my life uh, over there and my job and working, and I continued doing that for almost 16 years. And then, all, doing all this, I got so famous, I found a lot of respect. 132 other guys started working for me in different projects in that process. Maintenance guy, drivers, conductors, bodyguards, property managers, I mean, you name it, all kinds of guys in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and United Arab Emirates. So through all this time, I forgot that pay, uh, prayer that I did in my childhood when I was nothing. When I put my trust in God and I asked Him to equip me, help me, empower me, with all the things that's needed for becoming a famous, a successful man in my life. Nothing was a coincidence. Like meeting Chad, this is all God's plan. But I don't know if it was because of stupidity, 
ignorance or that time of the age, the younghood, I, I, I didn't remember and, you know, uh, I couldn't figure it out. I thought it's me. I thought it's myself. One day, I lost everything. God crashed me really bad. God was always over there for me. He always helped me. He always made me successful. But I never prayed. I never uh, remembered my prayer and request from the childhood. So he crushed me really hard. And, you know, all my friends uh, ran away from me, my parents and my bodyguards, and I lost my job, my business, everything. And I got so isolated. I was chained in my house, and I became a slave to alcohol, smoke, and, you know, just drink and talk bad stuff. And, you know, now the, my tribes and my friends and my relatives, they started bad things about me because now I don't, I'm not famous. I don't have power. I don't have connection. I don't have a network. So this is the time that God is trying to bring me back close to him, but still I'm not getting it. Because I still have that manly pride. I'm like, ah, oh, why I didn't I lost my business? Why I lost my job? Why I lost that property? Why I lost this? Why I lost but instead of understanding who am I? Instead of perceiving that it was God. That I asked him, now he is trying to bring me back to himself. I still didn't get it. I got paranoid, I got depression and anxiety, and it was to the extent of even PTSD. That in Afghanistan, there is no research centers to find out that if you are PTSD or not. There's not very uh, many good doctors. So, because my wife is always talking, and my daughters hate me, and... You know, now I don't have patience to listen to my family and my children and uh, to, to, to carry on. I don't even have this much courage to go outside because now I don't have bodyguards and guns. I think that if I go out my house, somebody's going to come and kill me. And then one day when I'm really drunk and drinking this Russian vodka, I got my Glock pistol. I was living in a five-story concrete house. I came downstairs. Like on the first floor, there was my office with my guests or friends came in, they, they would sit down over with me. I came over there and I thought that I'm going to just finish myself because again, uh, life is meaning, uh, meaningless. I don't have a purpose. I don't have a hope. You know, everything is taken away from me. Even my parents hate me. No one loves me. I lost all my network. I'm just going to, you know, put a bullet right here and I'm going to finish myself. Because no one is enjoying. I thought I am the problem of my family. Because my wife, every time she sees me, she's like, one, so you were not drinking, you were doing businesses, you were doing working with your American brothers, our life was so good, but now because you're a friend of the alcohol, our life is really bad and these different things. So all these different uh, sayings to me, it started uh, inside me. It came like a burden, like a rack sack that I wanted to get uh, rid of my life. My two little children, at that time it was, uh, one was like uh, two and a half year old, another was like four year old. They came and they knock on the door because there was a laptop in my office and they would come sometime over there, they would play this game, how to make your own pancake. And they, uh, they knock on the door, they're like, Padar, 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 Padar. 
At the time that I loaded the gun, I put it over here. This is that time. Before I pulled the trigger, this door knocked on me. Suddenly, I thought with myself, if I pull the trigger, these two little children will be crying for the rest of their life, and they will see their dad, that how a coward he was. He killed himself. I'm like, okay, I'm not doing it right now. I was really mad. I'm like, whenever my children are gone, I will do it some other time. But because I'm mad, I start shooting on the ceiling. I start shooting on the floor. I broke glasses, and my kids are crying. My daughters are crying. The neighbors came in. So long story short, Chad and myself, we were only talking through the uh, messenger. We were not allowed to talk, call, but we were talking through messages sometimes. Because in the, if you work for the government, and once your contract is finished, you are not allowed to talk to the ex-friend. If you talk, you go to the jail. We were afraid. But we would talk sometime. Not the business, but just the friendship, the brotherhood a little, a brotherhood a little bit. I saw Chad that, you know, he also had problems and uh, difficulties in his life, and he started over. I saw his testimony on the social media, and I got inspired by him. So now I try to fix myself. I surrender, uh, circled myself with some good friends, friends who are godly men, who are not alcoholic, who are not smokers. And then uh, once everything became uh, normal and I started a business between Afghanistan and India, I would buy all these fresh fruits from Afghanistan and send them through the air corridor to India. So like every $10,000 will make $3,000, $3,500 very easy. It was a quick turnaround. And suddenly I noticed the total and absolute withdrawal of the United States military and government and diplomatic missions from Afghanistan. In 2007, when we had that Black Friday, the guy who gave all my information to the Haqqani network, now because the U.S. military is leaving, I'm a direct target for the Haqqani network because they have all my information, they have my picture, they know who I was, where I was working, and I received different kinds of threats and everything, and I texted my brother, Chad. I, I told him, please help me. He's been trying to bring me to United States since 2016. HR later, recommendation later, this and that. But because I served under a classified contract, they do not give me that DUD contract number. It's classified. All those documents that we have been encrypting and saving and being very cautious that, you know, nobody steal it from us but somebody is hiding it in his garage in these days. <laughs> However, <laughs> so they didn't give me the contract number. If nothing is working for me. Everything is a failure. I remembered all the lessons from my childhood that there is over a, uh, 124,000 prophets came to this world. They all died. There was only one prophet who was born through the Holy Spirit of God, and he did his first mission with a lot of miracles. And uh, then he was ascended alive to heaven, and then he's coming back. So this is the time that I'm still uh, with my family. And uh, I'm thinking, what should I do? What should I do? I'm like, then I remember that all my American friends, they're worshiping God through Jesus Christ. And uh, during this disparate situation, I'm seeing that a political deal is made between the government and the 
Taliban, now the Taliban are coming and capturing the different provinces of Afghanistan. They are killing, they are torturing, they are dragging people behind the cars, they force marry their daughters, they kill their sons. I mean, there's a lot of chaotic things happening. And I'm seeing myself in that situation. Because uh, I was in Kabul, I was lucky, I had a little time before they arrive over there. But nothing is really working. So Chad is trying over there hard, nothing is working. So one night when all the 33 provinces were captured by the bad guys, the only province that's remained is Kabul province. And because of the, the deal that was made in Doha, they were not allowed to enter Kabul province uh, because of the evacuation and everything. Evacuation is happening, but nobody is letting me to get in because I don't have any right documents. So I have no idea, but to bow on my knees and remembering that lesson from my childhood, as I mentioned before, I prayed in the name of Jesus and I asked Jesus very humbly in a desperate situation. I asked him that I never followed you. I never did things the way you wanted me to do. It is not my fault. I was in a different geography. I was born in different geography and... Uh, I was really uh, arrogant or prideful or whatever it is, but I know that you are so merciful. Please forgive me and please ask your heavenly Father. I know you are in the heaven. Please ask your heavenly Father to help me, not because of me, but because of my daughters, because of my sons. Uh, it, they have nothing to do with this. Because if, it, if this was just about me, you know, I'm a soldier, I would just grab my guns and everything and pack it behind my truck and run away to the mountains. I will either get killed or, or kill a bunch of them. Because for me, it was uh, nothing. But when, when you have children, it, is, it makes you very weak in those kind of situations. makes you very, very weak. You are not that strong man anymore. So I cried and prayed and I cried and prayed and then I went out to the armory and I took out all my grenades, my ammunitions, my AK-47s, AKSs, uh, Makarov pistols, Glock, whatever I had. Because this house is like a five-floor uh, concrete house. According to my military experience, I used some checkpoints. I told my wife, you are using this checkpoint. My older son, I told you, you are using that checkpoint. And my older daughter, I assigned another checkpoint. And then two, two three other checkpoints, like on the first and second floor, I assigned for myself. And I told everyone that just stay behind those guns, and if anyone tries to climb into our house, shoot them on the forehead. Have no mercy on them. Because, they are, because I know my poor children, they don't have any idea what's happening to them, what, what is coming at them. They have no idea, but they are a little bit brokenhearted because they see that the country collapsed. A lot of people are being killed, but they don't know who I was, what I did, and what, now because of that, what's coming on my children. They have no idea. And I'm texting Chad and my all other connections in the United States, and I'm very nervous. Then I came back. It was like, I think, uh, 12.30 or 1 o'clock at night. For the last time, I prayed again. And I told my wife, please don't talk to me. I'm praying, and then I'm going to sleep because a few nights before I couldn't sleep, and then let me a couple of hours to sleep, then I will come back and control the checkpoints, then you guys sleep, we will have, have like uh, turns. She said, okay, no problem. And uh, I prayed, I prayed, prayed again, I prayed in the name of Jesus. I said, Jesus, please help me. I know you are alive. 
I know you are coming back. I know you are in the heaven. Please help me. And then uh, after very disappointments and helplessness and nervousness and depressions, my legs are weak, you know, my soul is dying on me and my hands are shaking. I put some grenades and my AK-47 on my uh, hag and I put a um, pillow on the mattress and I went for a sleep. And as soon as I put my head, I was gone. Suddenly, in my dream, like maybe after one hour or two hours, I'm not sure. I see that I'm standing on the Afghan land in my country. Everything is nice and neat. And suddenly, the sky turns black, like this ceiling without the lights. And uh, frightening, scary, stormy, thunderstorm, you know, different kinds of things start. And I see soldiers are running around, bombs are coming, jets are flying and making some crazy soundscapes, dropping bombs. And I see women are running around and they are crying. And, you know, there is a black shit and uh, it's a chaos. Smoke and grenades, mortar shells, gunfires. I'm trying to find out why is this happening? What's happening? Why is happening? So uh, I, I couldn't speak. I'm trying to speak, but I cannot speak. I was totally paralyzed. But luckily, my eyes were working and my heart and mind was working. So I, suddenly a rain starts. When the rain starts, this full land is covered by the rainwater. It becomes like an ocean or a river. And I'm drowned in the water up to this part. And I'm just swirling or circling like this. The water is trying to swallow me and turning me into circles. And then uh, I saw to my right side that uh, there was like a three by four round uh, dry land, like a table standing on the water or like a boat. My children are standing on it, my wife and daughters and sons. And my daughters are crying and they are saying, Padar, Padar, you know that slow motion in the dream. They are trying to reach their hand and catch me, but they cannot. We are far from each other and I'm far too, so I cannot move because I'm paralyzed. And this is the time now I forgot to save myself. Now I'm trying to find a solution to save my children. So parents, <laughs> you know that. So at this time, suddenly I remembered again that I was praying in the name of Jesus. Maybe this is a miracle. Maybe this is a bad thing. So I look up to the sky again at this time and I ask Jesus, please, did you ask your heavenly father to help me? And I said uh, different requests and prayers, and I cried, and I was very disappointed. It was a very desperate situation. It was the last minute that God showed me that He could have drowned me. My life had came to that point that I would be dragged behind the car. I would be tortured. My daughters will be raped before my eyes, and my sons will be killed. But because of Him, He saved my life. And I have been trying to come to the United States, and nothing is working on me. The whole CIA, they turned their back at me. The whole government of the United States, they turned their back at me. They're like, because I was a contractor at first, and secondly, I was an Afghan citizen. I was not an American. They're like, thank you for your service. This $3,000, your bonus. Love you, and see you later. You know? But so at this time, when I'm drowning, and I'm worried, and I'm talking in this dream with Jesus... A very scary and frightening sound 
tore the sky and a hand came out of the sky. This is not a joke. This is a dream. This is not a story or history. This is a dream, a real dream. Think about it, guys. I ask you, when you go outside, when you see the sky, especially at this time, it's, I think, cloudy right now. Before you get in your car, pause a minute and look at that sky. If a hand comes from that sky, a very big hand, my mathematics is not really good, uh, so I cannot tell you how big it was, but it was very big to the extent that I squeezed myself in and I got scared that if that hand touched me from the sky, he will mash me like potato and I will die. And I was scared and I asked in my heart, God, please help me some other way. At this time, there is a bl uh, black bricked wall on the water. A boat comes and hits this brick wall, and uh, the bricks are flying everywhere, and I hear this voice, hallelujah, and I hear this redneck American voice, Aziz, my brother, hang on tough, we're coming to save you. It's Daniel Stenson, uh, an American brother of me, and Chad behind the wheel of the boat with a cowboy hat, chains, and tattoos, and everything, and... Uh, <laughs> I'm like, hurry up. I cannot talk, but in my heart and mind, I'm saying, hurry up, please. And uh, then I see Chad in the middle of the boat. He's pulling the rope for the sail. He's trying to keep the balance of the, 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 the boat because uh, there is the waves of this water is not allowing the boat to come straight. It's, you know, going to different angles. And he's looking at me. He's like, he, 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 he's laughing. And uh, he's like, hang on, man, I know you can do it. I know you can do it. I'm like, who is this young man? He has no beard. He's very young. The size of Chad is half the size as he is now in that dream. That means he's more, even more shorter. <laughs> and he's very strong. The closer he comes, I'm like, oh, this is my brother Chad, but he's very young. And, you know, he gets, uh, give me his hand and pulls me to the boat. I'm saved. I'm still coughing. I cannot talk. Dano starts uh, reading the uh, Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is the, it's he who made us. And we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. The boat leaves. I don't know what happens to my children because it was a dream and Something happens in my house because my wife left the window of the kitchen. We had no electricity. She left the window of the kitchen on the third floor open so that the air can come to cool down the house. I think the cat tries to enter the, the kitchen. There was a metal bowl on the, uh, somewhere on, in front of the window. So when the cat hits this bowl, the bowl uh, drops down on the concrete floor and it makes a crazy noise. A crazy noise. I'm all, you know, frustrated, worried, even before that, lack of energy, and there's all kinds of different things going on in my mind. 
I got shocked, and I woke up. And I saw there is grenades in front of me, there is ammunition, pistols, and everything. And I saw AK-47 is in my hat like a baby. I'm like, where am I? What's, what's happening? Where was I before? Then I remembered that I was sleeping. What's happening? I turned on the TV. I saw that now the bad guys are entering the cobble from the different doors. And there is uh, gunfires everywhere. There is all kinds of problems. I got really nervous, really disappointed because I was really helpless. I have nowhere to go. Everyone I called, they told me, no, you're not coming to our house. It was your decision, including my parents, my siblings, my relatives, everyone. They're like, it was your decision. You worked for the Americans. Now ask the Americans to help you. If you come to our house, they're not only killing you, but they are also killing us. You're risking our family. Don't come here. Everyone told me so. Again, I'm praying to God, and I'm praying, and I'm remembering this dream, and I'm thinking about it. So I told my wife, whatever we have uh, that we can take with us, please pack it, and uh, money, guns, and everything, and let's leave the house, because it's not possible over here. They know where we, we live. They, when they come, uh, it's dangerous for us. So uh, with all of uh, disappointments and this bad situation, w like five days before the government collapses, my wife had an appendix. She did the operation, but because of the bad quality, uh, low quality medicine, the wounds were not healing. It was uh, kind of, uh, infected and it was bleeding. She's crying and she's trying to wrap up things. And so we left the house. And as soon as we left the house, it was like uh, the weather got uh, lighter. And I received a call from United States. He like, Aziz, my brother, this is Chad. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm talking to some very high-ranked officials. Uh, they have your documents. They know uh, what kind of uh, sacrifices you give for this beautiful nation. And he said, I don't care anymore. When he said, I don't care anymore, he meant that because of talking to me. Because the government, uh, according to the government, we were not allowed to be talking to each other. He like, I don't care you, I know how much sacrifice you made. I'm coming uh, to save you and your family. But before that, we are going to put a team together. Daniel Stinson and Drew Roberts is on their way to Abu Dhabi to talk to the royal family. And he said he's in Washington, D.C. And he, at the end, he told me, man, you earned it. God loves you. I'm like, dream. Then he tells me, God loves me. And then I'm still thinking, what, what was this? What, how does he know that God loves me? So hope started it in my heart. My hands started it working again. I wrapped up myself. I put my AK and vests and magazines and some grenades, and I took my children. We are spending nights in the parking lots. We are spending nights in, uh, beside the mountains. We are spending nights somewhere that people... Uh, are not able to recognize us, who we are. We saw our house before our eyes that the bad guys came. They stole everything, carpets, TVs, this and that. And whatever precious thing over there was, they burned the rest of it. So every time the team that Chad has put together, they came to Abu Dhabi. From Abu Dhabi, they came to Kabul airport. Now they are sending me GPS locations. To follow this location and come over there, we will get you. But they are not coming outside, and I, I cannot go outside. Every time I try to make it, 
inside the airport, first outer perimeter circle is controlled by the Taliban. Very risky. They are shooting, they are firing to spread the crowd out. The middle circle is controlled by the zero units, the Afghan zero units that were trained by the CIA. And then the inner circle is controlled by all these young Marines. So if I make it from the Taliban, now the zero units is an obstacle. If I make it from the zero units, now these young Marines are an obstacle. And then one night, because my wife was really crying and we made it to the Marines and I'm trying to show my documents and these Marines are poop, 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 they are shooting at me. Like above my head, the rounds are flying. And they're like, ah, no, no, don't come near. We don't know. I'm like, hey, man, my name is Aziz. I, I, I work for the United States government. Please let me to come closer. I will show you my documents. Let me get into the airport. My wife is bleeding. My children are scared, you know, and I'm an ally. And then because I got so exhausted and they're not listening and they're not stopping firing. And I told them, hey, please go to Google and Google Chad Robichaud. He's my brother. He's like, no, no, I don't know Chad Robichaud. Go, go. They're like, poop, 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 they're fired. Lots of disappointment and everything. You know, I came back. There was a time that after several attempts, I told Chad it's not possible. I'm not coming, brother. If you can, come to Tajikistan. I'm going to Tajikistan. And I'm not coming because my wife, she told me I would rather die inside the taxi but not under the feet of the people or got killed by the Taliban because we saw a few ladies, they got shot at their heads. Children were shot to death because they were firing like animals, you know. They had no control and people were trying, on the other hand, to storm into the airport. And you probably saw those pictures when people fell off the planes. So no need to explain. Finally, the guy, Chad, called the team. They had to come outside the Constantina wires come and get me, and then uh, put the zero unit guys with me. I went and I brought my family in, and then once my family was saved, I was sent again outside to go. Now I'm on the north side of the airport. I was sent to the west side of the airport, like maybe 20 kilometers or 25 kilometers drive, to find this girl who her family lives in Virginia. She was the student of the... American University of Afghanistan, and also she was an employee over there, but she was over there by herself, and they, somebody pushed her from the wall because she was trying to climb. She was injured badly. She was hungry, and her phone was, uh, had no charge. So I had to go, and have lots of different, accepting different other uh, risks, but now since my children are safe, I'm back a soldier. I'm back in the business. I don't care anymore. I have my grenades and guns, and wrapped up. I went and I found this girl and I brought her with me as my daughter and connected her with my family. And uh, finally we made it to Abu Dhabi. Nine months in limbo in Abu Dhabi. I was the special envoy for all the 17,000 immigrants that Chad and the team saved because they had no documents, no passports, birth certificates, marriage certificates. We had to make all those. And then finally I landed here. When I landed here, so I was still lost. I was a lost man. I was thinking, what should I do? What should I not do? And then I was really damaged after going through all that trauma. Uh, Chad uh, was also traveling at that time to Ukraine. He said that he's going to Ukraine, but I should go to the main legacy program for the Mighty Oaks Foundation. I was hired as a cultural advisor for the Mighty Oaks Foundation. And uh, Mighty Oaks Foundation is a nonprofit. It's a Christian ministry. Uh, we help 
the brokenhearted using the biblical faith, main legacy programs, spiritual uh, resiliency programs, so many different uh, good things we do over there, but it's all uh, faith-based with the love of Christ. So uh, I went to the main legacy program. I had no idea what I will be doing over there, how I will be doing it. I met all these instructors, these new faces, and I learned more about uh, Jesus over there. And uh, actually, there are several factors uh, that I surrendered my life to Jesus. But one of the factors was that uh, the prayer in desperate situation and the evacuation orchestration in my dream. And then the other was observation and study believers' life versus non-believers. And then review of my past life. And then the main legacy program from Mighty Oaks Foundation. And then during that program... There was a little sign beside my wall or my door, Jeremiah 6.16. And then I noticed after going, unpacking every one of those factors and analyzing it and reading it, I found out that God's been talking to me. He's been there in my life, but I was so arrogant or prideful man or whatever it was, I never get it. That was the time that I bounced back and I surrendered my life to Jesus. But only by surrendering... And uh, accepting him, it, it is not enough. And then I needed to do more things. Uh, I will read this other factor for you guys. One of the factors was Jeremiah 6.16. When uh, I look at this, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said we will not walk in it. Stand at the crossroads. I was at the crossroads. I lost everything. A backpack, six children, three daughters, three boys, my wife. I'm sorry to say this. This is a chapel. I don't want to offend you. I don't want to be rude or impolite. These children, all they need is, Daddy, give me this, buy me that, <laughs> take us there, take us over there. They eat and they poop and they, they give me all kinds of questions. But they don't know through how much trauma daddy's gone through. So they don't give me a break. So, <laughs> so this is the crossroad. And Luke asked for the ancient path. The ancient path, when I remembered, I tie this with that prayer from my childhood. That I see it, that you are a living God. You are there. And every nation has a different name for you. And you are global and you love everyone. And please make me a friend of yours. And when I look at the Bible, to surrender to Jesus, you don't have to be his slave. You can be his friend. So this was another thing that helped me with the, uh, coming to him. Ask where the good way is. And then I found out the good way is with him and the rest for my soul is with him. And I walked in it. And then I saw Matthew 11, 28 20 to 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That was me. I was heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I needed rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So it is his word. The yoke doesn't mean to take that wooden cross and walk in the... 90 degrees or 100 degrees on the streets of Texas, or I see some people. It, it may be good, it may be blessing, but 
he means his word by that. According to my opinion or my understanding from the Bible, it is like you learn it first and then you share it with somebody else and convince him and motivate him, empower him so that he can train another guy. He is meaning like discipleship by this term, according to my understanding. I'm not a pastor. Maybe Pastor Joe can help me with this one. I take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this was another factor. And then finally, I noticed that I surrendered. Now I need to submit. I submitted by... Concluding this, like with four Bs that I learned from the Mighty Oaks Foundation Main Legacy Program, like it's an everyday thing. Every day when you wake up, you have to be in the Word, like being in the Word. That means you have to study your Bible. You have to feed your soul with that spiritual food. I realized that there is a two kinds of food needed for us. There is one food is a physical food that we eat, which is good for our physical body. Another food is the spiritual food. If we are not feeding it in those kind of disparate situations, we, our physical body is not able to maneuver or, ha- or move or, or, or take a right decision. Being in the prayer, always pray. Like The good thing, uh, good thing that about the Christianity is that they pray about everything. And I'm Surrounded by very good faith-based people, Mighty Oaks, all they do is they are doing faith-based things every day. Our day starts with prayers and ends with prayers. So that's, that's a blessing from God to me. And then being in the fellowship. Being in the fellowship means like being in a faith-based group or your community or your church to come and be part of something and be uh, active, uh, not uh, be just a... Uh, consumer, but be also a producer. You can be, you know, standing in front of the door, welcome the people, you can do a little cleaning, you can do something, whatever it's uh, good for you, or you can do it, you're able to do it, you have to do it. So I learned that and I'm doing that. Being connected in authentic relationships, this means a corner, man. Now, Chad, my brother, he's my brother, he's my boss, he's my friend, and uh, he's my master. And uh, he's also my corner man. God has created man and woman. I will give you an example. If a man sees a beautiful woman on the street and in the Walmart or in a store or somewhere, all those serpentine attacks that's happening on his heart, only a man can perceive that. When a woman sees a handsome man, whatever is happening on her mind or her heart, on her heart, only another woman can understand that. Because uh, we are made differently with different uh, gifts, God's gift. No man will understand a woman ever. But this is reality. <laughs> this is reality. So because of that, Learning from the Mighty Oaks Foundation, for a man it is needed to have a man as a corner man to keep him accountable on his faith. And then for a woman, she needs a woman to keep her accountable on her faith. So then lastly, the last but not the least, uh, I have a reminder that I'm a passenger. God is my Father. Christ is my Savior. Heaven is my home, not this earth. 
Every believer is my brother and sister. Script is my message. Gospel is my guidance. The glory of God is my goal. I'm not that famous man anymore. I don't have guns. I don't have bodyguards. I don't have very many people working for me. But I have a simple life. I live in a rental house. And, uh, you know, I lost everything three times in my life. One time because of the Russian and Mujahideen war. Another time because of the Taliban and Mujahideen. And this time you all know what happened this last time. A lot of frustration, a lot of depression and anxiety and I spent like 40 years in that. But now I have a peace of mind. I was talking to Chad today that how good it is to be with God, to be his friend, and live your life through his commandments and through obedience and surrendering and submitting to him. I don't have any, I can travel for days and I don't have to be worried about my children. So, Right now, in the Mighty Oaks Foundation, my role is a cultural, uh, a cultural advisor on the international branch. Uh, uh, I went uh, for speaking events to different parts of the United States. There is Afghan soldiers, interpreters, contractors who were evacuated over here. And what I benefited from uh, being a friend of Jesus... I went and I spoke to these guys and I explained what Mighty Oaks is and what we are doing. And there is no VA programs for all these Afghans over here in the United States because they have been through trauma since their childhood, almost five decades. So we as a Christian ministry, we want to share the love of Lord with them through our main legacy program, which we have for them. Some of them, they agreed that they want to come to our program. So far, I think 31 or 32 guys signed up. So in this coming uh, October to uh, October 8 to October for, uh, f- 14 or 15 will be our first main legacy program. These Afghans will come. Please keep them in your prayers that the Lord may open their hearts and mind and they should realize the reality and, uh, you know, we want to bring them to clarity from darkness so that they can have a better life in the United States because right now all they do is they take the money from government or NGOs or churches, they eat and they sleep. They are totally hopeless. They don't have a goal. They don't have a purpose. They are totally isolated. Keep them in your prayers And I'm requesting you to keep all the Afghan women and children that's left behind over there into the hand of the evil regime every day. There's all kinds of crime happening. They pick up these beautiful girls from the street and they disappear them for a few weeks and they have, they rape them, torture them, and then they kill them and put them in a bag and drop them off on the streets. There's lots of bad things happening over there. One thing as of my Christian brothers and sisters, if I can request you, is to please keep all our allies, the innocent women, girls, or boys, and children in Afghanistan, in your prayers. Because I strongly believe in prayer, and that's all. I love you. Now I will pass it to my brother, Chad Robuchel. Please come over here. Yeah, I got to tell you guys, uh, I was, for Aziz can stay up here for a second, but for years before, you know, Aziz was still a Muslim, uh, even knowing he might never come to America, I used to have these dreams after I got ministry of uh, 
seeing Aziz standing on a pulpit, sharing his, his testimony as a Christian. And I had these crazy dreams, and, and I had a specific like vision of it. And, uh, and we were in at Liberty University, Thomas Rhodes Baptist Church. I'm speaking at the Ignite Men's event. There's like 5,000 men, and, and uh, they let Aziz have like five minutes at the end, which he took like uh, 15 minutes, but he was supposed to have five. <laughs> and uh, and he, he, um, he was standing there as I handed off the microphone, and as I'm walking off the stage, I caught a glimpse of my peripheral vision. It was exactly what I had seen before of uh, him speaking and sharing his story about uh, his, you know, his, his submission to Christ. And it was just took me back so, so much. And it's, God had this, I think God has this incredible plan for Aziz, uh, you know, not just to share his story with, uh, with Muslims uh, who are lost and struggling, but also with, uh, with the body of Christ because he has an incredible story that we, none of us can really relate to you know, what his, his life has been through. So I just, uh, I'm, I'm super proud of you, man. Thank you, brother. Love you, man. Thank you. Love you. So, so Aziz talked about the SIV program that we're doing. Uh, it was just really burdened my heart. Like so many of these SIVs came to uh, they came to America. Uh, the ones that did make it here, we have so many left behind still. Uh, they came to America and, and they didn't serve eight deployments like me. They served 15, 16 years. Uh, they served and not only did they serve that way and, and had their own trauma. Sixty thousand Afghans died. In, in defense of their country, one of the things that just really just boiled my blood was when um, when the, uh, the President Biden said he, he said, uh, "Hey, if they if they're not going to fight for their country, why 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 should we fight for them?" And sixty thousand of them that's equivalent to our civil war in ratio. Sixty thousand of them died for the fighting for their country, fighting for freedom, fighting against the Taliban. Uh, and so all these guys lost so much, and they're here in the United States, and they don't have access to. The VA. I mean, they can't go to the VA. They have nothing for them. And, and so who's going to help them assimilate into America and, uh, and be able to deal with all that trauma? There's no one to do it. And so uh, as a leader of Mighty Oaks, I'm like, we'll do it. Uh, we don't care uh, if they're, you know, what religion they are at the, at the time. We're just going to bring them in and we're going to share the love of Jesus with them. And we're going to help them live the lives that we believe that God created them to live. And Aziz is able to share his story. So Aziz has been going around the country to all these interpreters and sharing his testimony with them. And he was just in, a, in Kansas, Wichita, Kansas, spoke to about 100 of them, uh, all, all Muslims, and uh, told them, hey, this is a Christian program. And we had uh, 49 of them, uh, of the 100. 32-something signed up. Signed up right there, yeah. And, and, and so they'll be coming in October. And so... Uh, and, you guys may or may not know, you probably don't know, uh, Pastor Jerry and Pastor Joe wrote a check today to that program, and so the church is part of that now. You get a, Because uh, I can tell you, like, the mosque, uh, all these guys are coming here, the mosque aren't, do, aren't doing anything for them. Uh, all the mosques are doing is telling them, hey, these Christians that are bringing you groceries, cooking you food, giving you a place to stay, they just want to convert you. And the Afghans are like, well, what are you guys doing for us? Uh, where's, where's the food? Like, bring me some cookies. Like, like uh, help, I help our kids. They're not helping. And uh, so it's been amazing to watch, you know, the, the Christian church just step up and love these people and not even try to convert them. Like, respecting them culturally and just love them. And uh, because of that, people are, see, you know, these, these people are seeing the truth, what, what, what actually godly love looks like. And, and so many of them are, are finding a home in the body of Christ. And, uh, and I'm super proud that we're part of that. And it's, it's, a, it's an effort that we're going to take very seriously at Mighty Oaks. Uh, one of the things that Aziz said um, to me during the evacuation was was probably uh, one of the most life-changing perspectives of, 
that I've ever experienced. We did, we did all this work. We got 17,000 people. At the time, actually, we had 12,000 people. We hadn't got the other 5,000 left. We had like 12,000 people in the humanitarian center. Before we did the Maza Sharif piece and we got the other 5,000, I went to see Aziz and his wife and kids in Abu Dhabi, and we braced and hugged and, and um, just hugging Aziz, and we were just crying. And then his kids ran over, and they're like, Uncle Chad, Uncle Chad, and I started crying more. <laughs> and uh, and, and we, we were standing in the middle of this, this uh, kind of courtyard at, at, in Abu Dhabi, and there's these 12,000 people there. They're little kids playing. They're not worried about getting blown up or getting killed. They're safe uh, in this humanitarian center. They have medical aid. They have food. And they're, they're, they're free. I mean, they left everything behind, but they're, they're safe. And I told Aziz, like, man, like you, I want you to realize what happened here. Like, we love you so much, and our friendship's so strong for you that we came here just to get you. And because of you, that led us to rescuing all those people. And, and he said something that just such incredible insight and was ex- extremely selfless. He said, all those years you prayed for the six years to get me through the SIV visa process to get me out. And we felt like God didn't answer their prayers. But if, you got, if I would have got out because of that, you would have never came here to get me, and none of these people would be here. They'd all be left behind. And, you know, and that just really made me reflect on sometimes you pray, and we're anxious, and we want it to happen now for us, but God's timing is always perfect. And the Bible shows us over and over, but seeing that there in real time, seeing that God's timing resulted in not just Aziz making it to America selfless, selfishly like I want it, but Aziz, his wife, and six kids made it, as well as 17,000 other people. And, uh, you know, it was just, yeah, it was, it was incredible. So Aziz, Aziz talked about Mighty Oaks, and, and what Mighty Oaks really is about, if, if you guys don't know a lot about our ministry, uh, there's a lot of veterans organizations out there. In fact, there's 48,000 in America. Uh, about 10% of those are Christian organizations. What makes, I think, ours a little different is we're not like a hug event program. We're not like, hey, we're going to love you and cook, make you cookies and give you a, a quilt. And there's nothing wrong with those things, like take you fishing, take you hunting. We really are like not enabling, we're challenging. We, we want to challenge them to be who we think they are. Uh, not to you know, say, hey, thank you for your service. Like, we love you. Like, hey, you're better than this. It's time to pick yourself back up and get back, get back in the fight. And so we're able to do that because we're peer-to-peer. And we tell them from day one, you're not here to get well. You're here to be in a position to help the next guy. Like, we want you to get back in the fight. And that's what makes, has made Mighty Oaks so successful uh, over the years. Uh, we run our program. It's only six days long, followed on by a lifetime of aftercare. But initially, the intensive is six days at our camp. And, and you got to think, most of the guys that come into active duty have been through all kind of inpatient programs. A typical inpatient program for a, a struggling veteran on active duty is about six months. And so we get asked all the time, how could we send somebody to inpatient program for six months, they come back, and within a week, they're right back where they started. They go with you guys for six days, and they come back, like, radically changed. They're on fire for everybody. They're, like, recruiting other people, like, you guys are a cult or something. Like, what the heck do you do to these guys in six days? And, uh, and I always love telling these commanders, it, it's not six months, or it's not six days, or, or, or six minutes. It's in one moment. The moment that a man or woman makes a decision to live life the way we're created to live and step into a relationship with Jesus and uh, leave their toxic ways behind. And that's what, D- that's what Aziz made that decision. At one moment, he decided, you know, it's time to stop living that. Man, I remember Aziz told me, he's like, I was, I was like sitting there before that prayer of Jesus thinking, hey, Muhammad's dead. Jesus is alive. Like, uh, it's time to make this choice. And he did. And from that moment on, uh, his life has been changed for eternity, by the way. 
And, and I can tell you there's a lot more important things, and we talked about saving human life today, there's a lot more important things than saving someone's life. What's more important is saving people's eternities. And, uh, and that's what, when guys come through and have that moment at, and, in Mighty Oaks, then we challenge them and say, hey, now it's time to pay it forward. Let us equip you into paying it forward. And that's been the secret of the success at Mighty Oaks, is guys coming through and then having that encounter for themselves and then equipping them to pay it forward to the next guy. Uh, the Bible calls this discipleship. And uh, in fact, it's actually what Jesus commanded us to do, his last command to us when he said, go forth and make disciples of all the nations. And that's what Aziz is doing. That's what everyone at Mighty Oaks is doing. And that's how we've been able to reach over half a million people at Mighty Oaks, uh, not because you know, I started a program and started helping people. It's because I fell down. Someone lifted me up through introducing me to relationship with Jesus. They discipled me, equipped me. I helped the next guy, and then they helped the next guy, and they helped the next guy. And it's an exponential process that... It's actually the, not the exponential process that God created for us to save the world, right? The world's a broken place. And if you read the book of Revelations, uh, the book of Revelation, the, the Bible talks about the enemy's plan to destroy the world, but it also, uh, it also talks about God's plan to save the world. And there's two things that says in Revelation, I think, I'm not looking at it right here, I think it's uh, 12, 11, uh, Pastor Joe Cabrera, correct me, 11, 12, or 12, 11. God says there's two ways that, uh, to save the world. One is... The blood of the Lamb, uh, Jesus on the cross, and secondly, uh, a far second, but secondly, the power of our testimony. The power of sharing our testimony with the next person. And that's what uh, Aziz did here tonight. And, and the battle to go help people uh, find a relationship with Jesus and equip them to pay that forward to others, you have to know if you're going to be in the business of being discipled and discipling others through a relationship with Jesus, there's going to be obstacles and opposition along the way. And, 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 and I was thinking of one thing I could share tonight, and I have a short time to do it. And so I want to share one of my favorite stories of the Bible with you guys, uh, because it really illustrates what we do at Mighty Oaks. I think everybody looks at a ministry like Mighty Oaks and, and thinks, uh, man, it must be awesome. You guys are helping veterans, and it must be, man, it is the hardest job I've ever had. Much harder than going to Afghanistan to fight the Taliban. A ministry would be so easy if it wasn't for people. Right, Pastor Joe? It's just <laughs> so easy if it wasn't for people. It's hard, right? There's a lot of obstacles and opposition. So one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I think God liked this story too because it's shared in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a story of uh, five friends. Uh, one of them's paralyzed, and uh, the other four friends have a compassionate heart for their paralyzed friend. And in Luke 5, uh, 17 through 19, it says this. It's a very short piece in the Bible. It says this. One day... Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into a house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat, threw the towels into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Now, there's... A lot of times we read the Bible and you kind of breeze through stories and you go into the next. But there's times that you hit that pause button you got to dig in because it's so good. This is one of them. This is one of the stories because a lot actually happens in that short thing, I just 30 seconds I just read. Uh, first of all, the, a lot of obstacles happen for four friends that just wanted to get their buddy to Jesus for healing. You have to remember this isn't now where we knew Jesus was. Right? If we knew Jesus was out across town, like we know he's the Messiah. Like we want to get to him. This is like... They probably didn't even know who Jesus really was. Just this guy that's doing miracles. Uh, you know, maybe it's a hoax. Maybe it's not. Maybe he's a crazy person. They didn't really know who Jesus was. Uh, but they thought, you know, our paralyzed friend, we want to get him to this guy, Jesus, and, and see if he could heal him. So that was probably one, like, obstacle would be their skepticism. The second would be the paralyzed guy himself. 
Right? You might think, man, this guy, this paralyzed guy has to be pretty happy. He has four friends that care about him. They want to bring him to healing. People say that about Mighty Oaks all the time. Like, man, this, these veterans must really love you guys for running this incredible program for you. We do $8 million a year in programming. Like, that must, that's incredible you guys do that. They hate, they hate the idea of it. They're like, we don't go to Jesus camp. Like, we, uh, you know, they, we got to bribe them with, like, steaks and uh, cookies and ATVs. And, and, uh, and, uh, and sometimes their wives are like, hey, you go or we're going to divorce you. So ultimatums, their commands, like, we're sending you to Brig or you can go to Mighty Oaks. Like, most of the people are unwilling. This, this paralyzed guy was probably unwilling. You ever been around a really sick person? They usually don't have the best attitude, especially somebody's been paralyzed on a mat their whole life. Uh, he's probably, like, a skeptic. Like, I don't want to go... See this Jesus guy? Like, leave me alone. Leave me here. He probably was cynical. Uh, but the, the good news is he was on a mat. He didn't have a choice. So his friends picked him up and carried him, right? So he didn't have it. Now, uh, another, another obstacle they had was not just carrying their unwilling friend, but moving a limp body. I don't know if anybody here has ever carried a limp body before. But probably don't raise your hand. We don't want to confess their crime or anything. But, <laughs> but moving a limp body is, is not easy, right? So there's this limp body they have to carry. And I've talked to people. I know you guys are about to go to Jerusalem, uh, to Israel. And, but I've, I've talked to people that knew this story, and they, they told me that they didn't just carry the guy like next door. It was like down these stairs and to, and to a pretty, pretty far distance they had to carry this guy who's probably not happy, you know, paralyzed on a mat across town to get to this place where Jesus is. And then they get there, the Bible says, and the room is so full, it's so crowded that they can't get inside, right? So now they carry this guy, he gets there, and they're like, they can't even get inside. So did they turn around and say, hey, we tried, but it's too crowded, let's come back another time. Oh, man, uh, the Bible says that these guys figured out a way to get him on the roof. It doesn't say how they did it, but they figured out a way to get their paralyzed friend up on the roof. And then they probably paced out. They probably looked inside, seen Jesus, and they paced out like how far Jesus was. And, and then they, they do something crazy. They start digging a hole in the roof. Uh, not like this roof, by the way, isn't like uh, you might have on your home, homes here, like track homes here with you know, a piece of plywood, a piece of tar paper and shingles. It's a Middle Eastern roof. Thick. Mud, sticks, I mean, like the kind of, these, this stuff's tough. We used to cut holes in it to fight the Taliban. Like, this, these, it's a pain in the butt to get through these. They were digging through that. And I, I, just, I just imagine what that, what that was like. Jesus is in this room, giving a message. He's giving a sermon. It's probably really good because it's Jesus, right? He's giving this message. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a piece of dirt falls. And then, then light starts coming through. And then you look up, and he's these four crazy guys digging a hole in the roof. Uh, I just could imagine, like, what that, was, what that was like for you. I mean, I get distracted if a baby starts crying in the back when I'm speaking. You get four guys digging a hole in the roof. Not a small hole, either. A big hole. Big enough to shove their paralyzed friend through. And, uh, my, and the Bible says that they actually lowered their friend to the feet of Jesus. Now, my mind, I got kind of a crazy mind. My mind gets the best of me. And I think they lowered him, like, did they build a Build a pulley system? Like, how'd they lower him? Like, they lowered... I, I'm, I'm kind of imagining more like... They were like, hey, he's paralyzed anyway. What more damage can you do? Uh, and even if we hurt him worse, Jesus is about to heal him. So they just, like, shoved him through. And, uh, and I wonder, like, how high he bounced when he hit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what actually happened because the Bible's not clear on it, but they lowered him down to Jesus. And then, you know, of course, we hear it in, in the in there that Jesus actually heals the man but before he heals him a lot of crazy stuff happens right uh, a lot of crazy stuff happens and, and the Bible uh, gives like I think one of the most important things uh, through this they it's the point that I think before I go forward to know is that it's never easy to get broken people to place a hope 
It's never easy to bring people to Jesus. The enemy, the spiritual enemy, is always going to try to stop us. There's going to be obstacles and opposition along the way. They may not be a willingness. They may not, it may not be easy. But what's at stake is so worth it. As as a Spray said in a message earlier today, you know, is it worth it? Yeah, it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's worth all the obstacles to get people uh, from a point of brokenness to Jesus. And um, in that room where Jesus was with the paralyzed man, there was uh, not just fans of Jesus in there. There were some people that were following Jesus and believed in him. But also in that room was uh, critics. There were skeptics. There were the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And these Pharisees, uh, I don't see many teenagers in here, but the kind of teenage word is the haters. There were some haters in the room with Jesus. They were waiting for him to do something wrong. They were watching and waiting for Jesus to do something wrong. And, uh, and when this man gets healed, Jesus does something before he's healed that's, that to me is kind of crazy. Uh, it, it kind of throws you off guard. You read past it, but if you really look at it, Jesus actually heals the man. Uh, before he actually heals the man, I'm sorry, before he heals the man, he actually forgives him. Now, that's, not, that's crazy to me, right? In verse 20 it says, when, they, when Jesus saw their faith, right, he saw the friends of the faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. He does this before he heals the man. He forgives him for his sins. And now you think, why would Jesus do that, right? What's the, what was the guy's biggest need? If I took a paralyzed guy on a mat, laid him here on the stage in front of us and said, you know, what's this guy's biggest need? Like pop quiz, right? What's his biggest need? All of us would say the th- same thing, right? Maybe from the walk, right? He can't walk. He needs to be able to walk. That's his biggest need. But Jesus does something totally different by demonstrating to us the priority of spiritual healing before physical healing. If you want to know what, why what we do at Mighty Oaks works, uh, it's because of that. Uh, if you watch Fox News and you've seen me on it before, you've probably seen me bashing the VA because I think it's a very broken system and it's, you know, it's a mess. But the truth is they do a pretty good job of healing people's bodies and healing people's minds. and you know, They do TBI for brain injuries. People get shot up, blown up, lose limbs, uh, burned up. The VA does a pretty good job at that. But you can heal someone's body and you can heal someone's mind, but until you heal someone's soul... They're never truly going to be well. And the only thing or only person that can heal someone's soul is Jesus. Nothing else besides him will do that. That's why what we do at Mighty Oaks works so well. Jesus said your sins are forgiven. And the haters in the room begin to think blasphemy. Verse 21, blasphemy. Who is this to forgive sins? Only God can do that. Right? Only God can do that. And I say, yes, only God can. And Jesus did. Um, that was exactly what they were waiting for, though. They were waiting for them to mess up. They said, only God could do that. And Jesus knew their thoughts. And in verse 23 through 25, he says, oh, you think that's a big deal? I'm paraphrasing. Uh, <laughs> he said, hey, paralyzed guy, stand up and walk. And the man jumped up. And when the man jumped up, verse 26 says, the people were amazed. And they were glorified. And they glorified God. And they were filled with awe. And they said, we have seen remarkable things today. Uh, if you heard anything I said this morning or today, listen to this. When you stand up and walk from where you were to where God's taking you, people will be amazed and God will get the glory. Not me, not Pastor Joe or the church or Mighty Oaks Foundation. We all get to be a part of it, but God will get the glory. And, and, and your story will bring hope to others uh, who are still in the valleys of life. And they will see and witness remarkable things that only God could do. And when we look at Aziz's story, right, we don't see... A strong guy that pulled himself together by his bootstraps. We see a guy that was broken and he surrendered his life to the only person that could bring hope, healing, and, uh, and purpose moving forward. And that's to Jesus. And we've seen that through him. And it should bring hope and uh, 
should bring hope to others by sharing our testimony. Uh, as easy your life is, 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 is like literally proof of God's power, His love, and His grace to everyone that's watching and listening. And, uh, and through that, we know that we can have others that follow us. For everything I said this morning and everything uh, you heard tonight from Aziz, I want to leave a call of action uh, for each of you about rescuing people, not physically, but eternally. If, if uh, not if, when you die, because you will, by the way, you can't get out of this life alive, uh, you're going to die. When you do, I pray that you find yourself in heaven. But if you, if you find yourself there, uh, it will be because someone told you, about Jesus. Someone cared enough about you to fight past obstacles and opposition uh, to ensure that you stepped into a relationship with Jesus and that you ended up in heaven. The question really is, who's going to be there because of you? Who's going to be in heaven because of you? Despite all the garbage we see in the news uh, right now and how upside down our country is, we do live in the greatest country on earth. America still is that. And while our freedoms are under attack, uh, this is, still is, in fact, the freest country in the world. In fact, we're part of only 25% of the world that has religious liberty and has the ability to stand on a pulpit like this and freely share Jesus. Only 25% of the world. And so I'd ask you not to waste that. I challenge you not to waste that. There's people around the world in places like where Aziz live that they don't even have the freedom to do that. Every man and woman that has donned that uniform since 1775, fought, bled, died for this country, did so so that you would have that freedom. As bad as this world seems right now, uh, we are blessed. We're blessed people and we're a blessed nation. And so take advantage of that freedom. As people are in the valleys of life right now, you can share your story, your testimony, with the same courage that Jesus, that, uh, the same courage that Aziz displayed tonight, and bring hope to those who are lost, point them forward, but then don't stop there. Teach them how to do the same, how to pay it forward, and to exercise what Jesus called us to do, to go forth and make disciples of others. Thank you, Pastor Joe, for letting us come here this weekend. Uh, I really appreciate you and Pastor Jerry, all the church. And, and for you guys, you guys have been amazing. I, I really feel like this is a new home for me. And uh, I'm excited to come back. My wife didn't get to come with me this time, uh, but she definitely is going to come back with me in the future. Um, I, I mentioned I had three adult children, um, but actually I have three adult children uh, and three brand-new grandchildren. And then we also have a brand new daughter, and some wife's home with our brand new daughter. We we adopted a brand new baby girl named Summer. Uh, she's part of she was part of our family, and we stepped in to do that. She's uh, eight months, and we've we've had her for four and a half months now, and it's been a huge blessing. Some wife uh, did not come because of that, but uh, we look for. I know she looks forward to meeting all you guys, and, and love you guys, and thank you so much. It was an honor to be here with you this weekend.